Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is the first of two episodes looking back on the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which arguably kicked off when the New York Times and The Guardian published articles on May 17, 2018. The Times headline was How Trump Consultants Exploited the Data of Millions while The Guardian went with revealed 50 million Facebook profiles harvested for Cambridge Analytica in major data breach. That number and the scale of the scandal would only grow in the weeks and months ahead. It served as a major catalyzing moment for privacy concerns in the social media age. In these two episodes, we'll look back on what has happened since, the extent to which perceptions of what happened have changed or been challenged, and what unresolved questions that emerged from the scandal mean for the future. In this first episode, I speak with David Carroll, a professor of media design in the MFA Design and Technology Graduate Program at the School of Art, Media, and Technology at Parsons School of Design at the New School. I've known David for over a decade, including during the period in which he legally challenged Cambridge Analytica in the UK courts to recapture his 2016 voter profile using European data protection law, events that were chronicled in the 2019 Netflix documentary, The Great Hack. I asked David to reflect on the scandal these five years in. I'm David Carroll, an associate professor of media design at Parsons School of Design. David, can you explain your relationship to the Cambridge Analytica scandal? Sure. I got myself entangled with the Cambridge Analytica privacy scandal very early on by being encouraged to do what's called a subject access request, which is to request my own data under UK law, because we determined that the company was British. And by doing so, we set up a kind of legal chain reaction that did result in a lawsuit later on and interconnected with a larger scandal more broadly and focused on how the company really did violate the privacy of all Americans during the 2016 election cycle. And this story was captured in the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack, which came out in the summer of 2019. Can you describe that process? How did you request your data? Sure. So I was able to get the process started even before Trump was inaugurated in January 2017 and received a response from the company that March which showed that indeed, yes, it was, our data was stored in the UK. And they did provide an Excel spreadsheet of some data that verified that they did have a file. But my legal counsel advised me that the disclosure was inadequate and that we had rights to much more information than was disclosed. And that became the subject of the legal dispute both a complaint to their data regulator, the information commissioner's office, as well as a separate legal claim. And both of those actions had significant effects. The case was filed five years ago around this time. Uh, In fact, the the St. Patrick's Day weekend when the New York Times and The Guardian released their story revealing one of a few whistleblowers 
uh, which really started the global headline cascade around the issue. And unfortunately, the company declared insolvency and bankruptcy shortly thereafter. So I was not able to pursue that legal claim in full, but the ICO, the regulator, did criminally prosecute the company while in administration for ignoring its order to disclose all of my data. And we did take them to court in insolvency uh, court in the UK in hoping to get a different administrator assigned so that we could get to the bottom of how the data was used during the 2016 election, but we did not win that case. And so the company was able to liquidate without answering a lot of questions. So very skillfully used the bankruptcy insolvency legal system to escape all the accountability we hoped for. And the ICO's criminal prosecution was actually the only instance of the company being successfully prosecuted anywhere before it liquidated. Let's step back a little, talk about how you got wrapped up in this. Yes, I've been working in the digital marketing space for my whole career, as long as it's lasted, circa Y2K during the first dot-com boom-bust cycle. So I've seen it all develop. And actually, just before getting interested in this topic, I was working with you, Justin, when you were executive director of the NYC Media Lab. And we had developed a research project with Hearst to develop a machine learning media startup. And it was during that time of just trying to become a tech startup guy that I experienced firsthand the mechanisms of building an app and collecting data and the economic pressures to monetize it. And really just seeing the default settings on the other side of the screen gave me that firsthand view that there were really no protections for users and that full exploitation was a default setting. So when that company didn't succeed, I had sort of become radicalized by the industry itself. And so I was well poised to become critical of it. And interestingly, um, around that time, this was 2014, 2015, um, Apple introduced its sort of first of a couple of significant changes to its operating system. It introduced ad blocking in mobile Safari, and this created a shockwave uh, in the ad tech industry and the publishing industry and, and more broadly. And I think it was the first sign that Apple would be a, a key player in disrupting the data exploitation market. And so I got involved in the, the conversation in industry there because I had sort of met the industry becoming a startup guy and was trying to say that some of the interest in ad blocking was related to privacy anxiety bubbling below the surface and nobody wanted to... <laughs> take that seriously. But indeed, I think when the Cambridge Analytica scandal exploded, it really was this boiling over of anxiety that had been building up for quite some time. And that's why it was there at the right place at the right time to already be sensitized to misdeeds of the industry and academia even, and uh, being encouraged by European researchers 
namely um, mathematician Paul Olivier de Hay, who had already been doing interesting research on these subject access requests, holding tech companies accountable. He had already been doing interesting work. So he was looking for an American to try it out with Cambridge Analytica, the subsidiary of a company called Strategic Communications Laboratories, which he had been following for several years. So it really was a, a collaborative, experimental research project at first, just conducted over Twitter, meaning met people over Twitter. And then even when I received the data that March 2017, I posted it to Twitter immediately. And that got the attention of not only other legal experts across the pond, but even got the attention of the regulator, the information commissioner's office immediately. So Twitter was an important tool right away in publicizing the research process. And I think that was instrumental in attracting interest and even got the interest of other reporters and documentary filmmakers. It's difficult to put yourself back into that moment, but I remember you fielding media requests at all hours of the day, just being at the center of a true media storm. Facebook was called to testify in multiple legislative bodies around the world. It was a catalyzing moment. Looking back on it, do you think privacy activists made the most of it? Yeah, I, I do remember the kind of 15 minutes of fame that it caused me. Um, I was probably underprepared for that experience, uh, didn't have that much media training, but I learned on the go, I guess. It was incredible, the feeling of interest in the topic because Facebook had not yet experienced such a negative public relations story. Of course, it had some bad press, but but the scale of this was truly next level. And it was also interesting to observe how the press fixated on the number. 87 million is the most frequent number appended or that prefixes every headline. And it was just interesting to see how the the psychology of the scandal itself is something to reflect upon that as soon as a number was released, that it somehow became tangible. Later on, I realized that number was a fraction of the total number of people affected. We later saw evidence that every single registered voter in the United States had a file illicitly created about them using this pilfered data. So I don't even think we've really reckoned with the scale of the scandal, but it shows that we fixate on numbers and need them to somehow process things. But it was a important moment where finally there was a scenario of privacy abuse that affected a broad constellation of society, particularly because the political process and elections, a sensitive domain of society had been affected, that this was more than selling ski vacations and skin creams. This was about selling democracy. There has been a change in tone in the way that people talk about Cambridge Analytica, almost a retrenchment, looking back and wondering if the scandal deserved the kind of moment that you describe. A lot of that seems tied to questions about what Cambridge Analytica was selling, whether its claims about political persuasion were snake oil. I know for you it was always about data privacy first and foremost, 
What do you observe about the dialogue on Cambridge Analytica now, five years in, as it begins to settle into historical context? Well, there was skepticism, you know, even in the height of it, it was difficult to produce a smoking gun piece of evidence that would have convinced people of the kind of hypothetical requirement that they had in their mind. Like it, it seemed that the evidence required to produce, to show that Cambridge Analytica's sales pitch met its product offering was an insurmountable level of evidence to achieve, especially given the lack of cooperation among witnesses and the ability of the company to dissolve itself and avoid this evidence being revealed. So, you know, much of my legal case in the UK was fighting to get uh, the company's secrets exposed to the public so that it could be a component of many active investigations, both government agencies and civil lawsuits. But we never were able to expose that and multiple official investigations, particularly by the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Federal Elections Commission and the FTC, you know, specifically indicate in their reports that the failure of witnesses to cooperate and the failure of international agencies to collaborate and the the bankruptcy insolvency forced many of these reports to end with an inconclusive finding. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, its final report is inconclusive on the matter of Cambridge Analytica. The Federal Election Commission's investigation, inconclusive. So I think a lot of people who want to be pessimistic and skeptical as their nature, they, I think, have used these inconclusive reports to support their skepticism, as opposed to acknowledge that these inconclusive reports actually challenge their skepticism. We do have some evidence that Cambridge Analytica did succeed in some aspects of its sales pitch, just not the one that is most popular. For example, the most popular kind of imagination is that their psychological profiles somehow hypnotized people. A lot of the skepticism involves a kind of unrealistic imagination of how these methods might work, that people's free will and critical thinking is somehow disabled and they are hypnotized and can be controlled by propaganda directly. And I think that's a, a, a sort of weird overstatement of, of how things work in reality, especially in political marketing and electioneering. And it, it didn't come out until much later, and it, it didn't come out until most people had moved on from the scandal and were bored of it, to be honest. But in the lead up to the 2020 election, the entire Trump database from 2016 was leaked to Channel 4, the public broadcaster in the UK that also had managed to do a undercover operation of Cambridge Analytica SCL executives, which is included and featured in The Great Hack on Netflix, that same group of reporters received the leaked database later. And inside that database, they analyzed a 
highly racialized deterrence campaign, one that specifically targeted black voters in Milwaukee and black and Latino voters in Miami and targeted them for deterrence to demobilize them from participating. And this was micro-targeting of false information. So the clearest example that we have evidence of for this deterrence campaign is a video clip of Michelle Obama speaking at a event. And she is quoted an expression that's, that goes something like, if you can't run your own house, you can't run the White House. And a caption is put underneath the clip that indicates that Michelle Obama is referring to Hillary Clinton. And this unattributed, unlabeled clip was targeted to Black voters in battleground districts in Milwaukee, for example. And the full clip, if you see it, it's Michelle Obama is referring to herself in a self-deprecating way. She's not referring to Hillary Clinton. So it's a, an example of cheap, effective, custom disinformation manufactured by Cambridge Analytica and micro-targeted for the purposes of deterring a Black voter in a battleground district from participating. And the reporters from Channel 4 actually went to uh, Milwaukee and found one of the voters who was marked for deterrence and showed her her profile. And it was accurate. And they asked her how she felt about being marked for deterrence. And she replied that it made her want to vote even more. So that to me shows a kind of power in revealing people's profiles to them, that it has the effect of neutralizing the negative effect, potentially. So that's an example of why I think U.S. citizens need to be able to see their voter profiles, and we don't have this right yet, even though they have it in Europe. So this is still an unresolved problem, and we have not even come close to solving it. And I think it's also important to note that when the members of the Republican Party were approached and said, do you think that this deterrence tactic is compatible with democracy? They say, yes, it's totally legitimate form of electioneering. So playing dirty and playing anti-democratic is still a playbook and is totally enabled by having no data privacy laws here that are any bit applicable or effective, and a openness towards targeted disinformation and a willingness to practice that as a legitimate way of campaigning. We are nowhere near addressing this fundamental anti-democratic way of campaigning. From a regulatory perspective, what do you think have been the biggest impacts of the Cambridge Analytica scandal around the world? And when you think about the various lawsuits, what's been the biggest impact of all the litigation? So we'll start with the regulations and the regulatory um, impacts. So if we start in the U.S., obviously the most significant one is the FTC, which imposed the largest fine ever for the scandal, $5 billion. So if critics say, well, this wasn't really that much of a privacy scandal, well, then I ask, why did it cause such a record fine? Um, some critics of that allege that the fine was a cost to bear for avoiding deposition by Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg that 
um, allegation actually even came up in a shareholder lawsuit. So the relationship between the regulatory actions and the litigations are, are always important to keep in mind. So it certainly activated the U.S. regulators at the federal level to uh, enforce laws on the books. It also had dramatic effects at the state level. So the California Consumer Privacy Act was passed in the wake of Cambridge Analytica in the home of Silicon Valley, um, led by a um, basically a former real estate developer, Alastair Mataggart, who basically had a barbecue one day, heard from a Google engineer of what they were capable of. And this in the backdrop of the scandal, so it created the conditions for a ballot initiative to put pressure on Sacramento to pass what is still the most comprehensive, strongest state privacy law in the U.S. And people who were in the room where it happened uh, have told me since that anytime the Silicon Valley companies would sort of push back against the CCPA, as it's been called, the supporters of the bill simply had to utter the words Cambridge Analytica as a front of kryptonite and the protestations would dissolve. So it served as a important tool for reformers to stand up to the industry interests who before Cambridge Analytica could always come up with a reason to limit, dilute, water down, stop, obstruct privacy reform. There was finally an example that could be held up and said, no, you're wrong. We need reform. So it, it, it served that role significantly. I'm remembering I have to answer a previous question that you asked about sort of when did the media firestorm die down, phase out? And it was going strong all the way up to the spring of 2020. And it stopped pretty suddenly. And it stopped because of COVID that a new issue became the primary subject of people's attention, but it certainly felt like the data privacy question problem was on people's minds and it took the pandemic to distract people from it. But I noticed that in the early stages of the pandemic, people were still worried about their privacy in digital context. If we can recall how the um, exposure tracing apps and Bluetooth contact tracing apps were released with a lot of privacy discussion in the background and that people entered the pandemic with privacy concerns. And so I think the cultural effects, you know, uh, did last into the pandemic. Um, and then later on, we noticed that there was still privacy on the minds of people when the Supreme Court's draft of the Dobb decision leaked and then came to pass. And we then realized that there were significant privacy issues across state lines with regards to health data and location data and people visiting reproductive health care facilities and that information being available on the open market by data brokers. I think this is all the legacy of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, that we finally had a mental model to understand potential risks and 
to accept bad actors in the ecosystem doing awful things and getting away with it. And so I think the legacy of the scandal continues to this day. And we even heard echoes of it this week when the CEO of TikTok was hauled in to Congress with a similar kind of combative interaction with lawmakers. And the subject of Cambridge Analytica came up both by lawmakers, but also by the witness himself to call out that the United States um, doesn't have a great track record when it comes to regulating tech companies, especially on these issues. And where did the lawsuits net out? So, you know, one of the things that one of the whistleblowers warned about, Christopher Wiley, was that Cambridge Analytica was a canary in the coal mine, that there were so many Cambridge Analyticas out there that that this was just one of many examples of industry practice. And we finally got a glimpse into the scope and scale of that assertion when the consolidated class action lawsuit in the Northern District of California approached settlement, meaning there was a class action of Facebook users who successfully litigated in California and that court recognized also significant privacy violations. And the company settled because it was not looking good for the company. And interestingly, the company's Facebook's um, counsel was extremely aggressive in the court and was actually sanctioned by the court for its regrettable conduct. And as a consequence, significant documents were unsealed. And anyone who has gone through those documents can be shocked to see the scope and scale of the extent to which many other companies were doing the same thing as Cambridge Analytica, even at a larger scale. And big, significant companies, whether it be Yahoo or MicroStrategy, they were harvesting friends' data illicitly, and they were using it improperly against Facebook policies. And these were big companies that would have been a significant issue from a business perspective for Facebook to uh, retaliate against. Like it's, it's almost convenient for Facebook to ha- only have to worry about this one shady, dodgy set of swashbuckling UK pirate types and not worry about you know, dozens and dozens of other, even larger examples of data leaking breaches, however you want to call it. And so that came out very late in the process and did not get a lot of press attention. And I think it's unfortunate because it was very vindicating for those who wanted to hold up Cambridge Analytica as a canary in the coal mine, that this is just showing what is has been largely industry practice and the need for fundamental reform is strongly argued when you look at the extent to which many companies got away with doing things as bad as Cambridge Analytica or worse. Let's talk about the present day. In 2018, you and I wrote about the Cambridge Analytica scandal in MIT Technology Review. We wrote then that what was most important ultimately 
was not whether Cambridge Analytica had any measurable effect on the 2016 U.S. election, but rather the implications for the future. We wrote about the convergence of data mining, artificial intelligence, psychology, marketing, economics, experiential design. We warned that the worst-case scenario is that advanced targeting technologies fed by all this data would combine with new methods for automatically generating convincing content. Not just text, but also images, video, audio. When you look at what's going on now with new methods for targeting and acquiring data, as well as generative AI, what do you make of it? You know, it's been five years since the scandal rocked the the international community and opened people's eyes to the idea that bad actors are doing bad things. But it was interesting to watch, you know, people who are skeptics of the company and its capabilities really zero in on claims and evidence that the company was nothing special. It was just using ordinary tools off the shelf and just doing things what many companies do anyway, that that there's nothing sort of special about this company. And this is somehow a argument to support that we have overreacted and that we should just not worry about this somehow. I, I don't necessarily understand the motivation behind the downplayers, to all be honest, but I'm trying to figure out why they are so interested in downplaying this story. But the problem is, is not the technical capabilities in 2014, 2015, when this was really going on. The concern is if this practice is tolerated and even encouraged, then how will it further develop both in the side of more and more data being exploited in more and more sophisticated ways? And then also on the media side, how can disinformation itself become more and more sophisticated and tailored to become more and more effective in its objectives to manipulate people. So there, that's a natural concern. And indeed, now that we are seeing text prompt-based synthesizers generate images and voice and text and, and soon video, the ability to automate the production of highly tailored political disinformation uh, becomes even more enabled. So we've already seen images, synthetic images created of former President Trump on a perp walk that was created by um, the fellows at Bellingcat. We have seen the Pope being rendered in hip-hop drip glamour uh also convincingly they just you know you would you have to be told that these images are synthetic um that we are approaching photorealism much sooner than anticipated so because we have not really done much to address privacy rights and data protection in the united states since then and we have not really done much to figure out how political speech can be moderated during elections. It's still anything goes Wild West. And so the concern even for next year, next year's election cycle, that we really should expect highly micro-targeted synthetic media to be used in the elections. And so the question is, will civil society even be able to monitor 
this activity? Do we have the tools even to observe this inaction? Or is it so trivial now to produce and custom tailor that even being able to observe it will be a challenge? Not enough people see the connection between data privacy and protecting against the worst possible abuses of AI. But I'm wondering if you can imagine another catalyzing moment in the future where that connection becomes clear, and where perhaps folks connect the dots with Cambridge Analytica? So a catalyzing moment for me as an American approaching this question was realizing and appreciating that the European Union has enshrined data protection as a fundamental human right in its charter. And that's the reason why laws like the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, exist. The reason why Europe has such a different view on this question is because it's sort of in their constitution. They're just enabling what's fundamental. And because the European Union was founded in modern times when data existed as a computer element in society, they had the vision to understand this was necessary. And in the United States, you know, we're still living on a document that was scribed, you know, with a uh, feather on an ink under candlelight. And it is not updated for the 21st century in any way. So we are still centuries behind the curve on protecting our democracy from clear and present threats that we are creating at rapid paces. And so I hope that a catalyzing moment occurs to help Americans realize the necessity to update our individual rights at the most fundamental level, especially considering the power of industry and especially considering the Supreme Court's position on privacy. The current court seems to say that all privacy rights must be enumerated specifically or they they don't exist. And I think that the threat is significant uh, as to how rapidly these large language models are developing without any sense of safety or security or consumer protection. It's being beta tested on society as we go and at a pace that is unrivaled. And there's no way that we will be prepared for what a bad actor will be able to produce just with the tools that are available right off the shelf. And we also see that open AI is you know, getting caught in its own privacy scandals. Um, that the question is when and if open AI will be hauled into Congress and questioned, or who is going to be able to sue open AI for privacy violations? Where is their jurisdiction? And is the LLM model itself potentially a regulatory escape valve? That is, what happens when we get to this legal conundrum of you can't sue a model, you can't sue software, who is the company? What's the corporate ent- entity? And can it just go out of business when it really gets in trouble? As the Cambridge Analytica scandal settles in your own mind, what do you take from it personally? You're a relatively young guy. You may have 30 or 40 more years to work on these issues. 
What do you think it means for the future? Um, my emotions about Cambridge Analytica are quite mixed uh, in retrospect. On one hand, you know, many investigations were launched. Thousands and thousands of lawyer hours were spent. Hundreds of thousands of pages were produced of important material. And the vindication that wrongdoing occurred and harms um, needed to be redressed was was not co controversial, that that there was clear ev evidence of the need to find accountability here in many different venues. So on one hand, it's vindicating. But on the other hand, it's a little dispiriting. If you imagine Cambridge Analytica was a stress test on the regulatory apparatus internationally, on many counts, it got a failing grade because the company got away with it at the end of the day and that entities were not able to cooperate effectively across international borders, even though the data flowed internationally. So I think there's a lot to be learned as to the limitations of our regulatory apparatus, that the fear of regulators by companies is overstated. That if you can be as bad as Cambridge Analytica and only really get a slap on the wrist, and if you can be as powerful as Facebook and not really be harmed by it, arguably Apple has done more material harm to Facebook's business, then I think we need to recalibrate our understanding of what tech regulation even can accomplish in its current state. And then also observing the present day legislative activity where we have more and more states coming up with more and more different ideas of privacy law, creating a patchwork that will be bad for business and bad for citizens. Instead of leadership in Washington, D.C., and instead, we are carving out politically palatable actions like protecting children or going after Chinese companies instead of the most important thing, which is to catch up with Europe and fundamentally enshrine basics to survive the 21st century. David, thank you very much. Thanks, Justin. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.